Amen. So if you've got a copy of the Scriptures, would you open with me to Mark chapter 10? We're in a series in the Gospel of Mark. We don't have, believe it or not, that many weeks left uh, in the Gospel. We'll finish, uh, for the most part, on Easter Sunday, uh, which, believe it or not, is less than a month away. Uh, hard to believe. And we've been walking through and we've been asking the question, uh, who do you say that Jesus is? Because it's the most important question ever asked and a question that Jesus himself asks in the Gospel of Mark to those who are following him. And today we're going to ask a really big question uh, that Jesus addresses with his disciples, and that is this question What is greatness? What is greatness? And uh, as I was thinking about greatness, I realized uh, there's this little phrase, this little acronym that, that has been circling around. And, and I've only really heard it become really popular in the last maybe uh, two or three years. But, but maybe it was around before, but I, I just feel like I never heard it. And it's uh, the acronym GOAT. You know this acronym? Do you know what it means? The greatest of all time. G-O-A-T. And I thought... <laughs> Uh, it's such an interesting acronym. Uh, I don't think that it was uh, made up by the church uh, or by those that follow Jesus, uh, but it's brilliant. Uh, it, it's brilliant in explaining the gospel definition of greatness, okay? Uh, because um, I want you to, to right now just close your eyes, close your eyes, and think of a goat, a literal goat, the animal, a goat, Okay? And if you're imagining with me, what you realize is not impressive at all. <laughs> There's nothing overly impressive about a goat. It's not revered in the animal kingdom. Uh, yet, for some reason, we like to associate the greatest people in their field uh, of influence as goats. And this might be the greatest Freudian slip ever. And we'll see today why that is. Because Jesus um, will actually tell us that to be great in the kingdom of God, you must become very small. That it's actually those who humble themselves and serve who get to ride high on the hog in the kingdom of heaven. Now poor hogs, they get the shaft either in this life or in the next Jesus and his movement were really bad for hogs everywhere. But <laughs> that's not the point. Uh, in all seriousness, Jesus will tell us something very important. He is the real greatest of all time. And he's the greatest because he served like no one else served. There was nothing particularly impressive about him, the scriptures tell us, except for the way he served all those whom he loved. Um, if you've ever thought that greatness was beyond your reach, or you've seen somebody else and you say, now that's a great person. If you've, all, all, if you've ever desired to be great, some really good news for you today because we've always had a fundamental misunderstanding of what greatness actually is and how to locate it in our world so today, Jesus is going to help us relocate greatness and discover the key to actually unlocking the greatness within us. 
Now, as I say that, you might say, this is going into a motivational speaking conference. <laughs> this guy's like Tony Robbins. Unlock the power within. No, I'm not going to unlock the power within, but I'm going to give you the key to unlock the power without and become more and more like the greatest of all time. It will start by putting yourself second so that you can serve others first. So let's dig in. Mark chapter 10. Now this, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there are some at the ends of the rows. You can also Google Mark chapter 10. Just ask somebody to pass them down if you, if you want uh, an actual physical copy. Um, when we get to this account in Mark, I just want to give you some background. What we've realized at this point is that uh, there's all sorts of misunderstanding surrounding all sorts of topics. Last week, we looked at the Pharisees and how they totally misunderstood what marriage was. They misunderstood the essence of marriage. That's followed by a story in which the disciples themselves misunderstand who children are in the kingdom of God. The importance and the value of children. And then right after that, and we preached this sermon actually back in November during a little mini-series we did on what does Jesus have to say about finances. Uh, there's a story about a rich young man who misunderstands what the real cost of following Jesus actually is. And then, Jesus, for the third time, has to explain to the disciples why he must go and die and rise again. He predicts his death for the third time right before this. And the disciples are really thick in the brain. They have a hard time understanding what Jesus is saying. So let's read that third prediction because it sort of sets up uh, just so the silliness of, of the passage that we'll read today. So, in Mark 10, verse 32, Jesus, for the third time, predicts his own death. It says this, And taking the twelve again, he, that's Jesus, began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, We're going up to Jerusalem, which was the capital city, it's where, where all the action happened, and the Son of Man, talking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. So Jesus has just said this. And right on the heels Right on the heels of these words comes a very baffling request from two of the disciples who were actually a part of Jesus' inner circle. So there's the twelve, and then there's an inner circle of the three, and these two are brothers within that inner circle. Verse 35 says, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus and said to Him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now just stop real quick. It's a pretty bold statement in and of itself. We want you to do whatever we ask. And Jesus, 
as he has a tendency to do, responds with loving kindness. He doesn't disregard them. He doesn't just laugh them away. But I do think what, 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 what he responds with is, is actually quite funny. And I actually like to picture him responding uh, while, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but I couldn't help thinking about this all week, uh, eating a bag of corn nuts. And I don't know why corn nuts were, I'm just, there's something about corn nuts that's just funny when people are eating them in conversation. So I like to picture Jesus sitting back, just popping in corn nuts and, and, and responding uh, to them. <laughs> Verse 36, I, I'm weird, I don't know why I said it. Okay, and Jesus said to them, now think about what they just asked. Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do for you? Pops in a corn nut. What do you want me to do? And look at how they respond to him. And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in glory. Now here is, is what they are asking. You have to picture a monarch sitting on his throne. And he who sits on the right and on the left are his two top advisors. They're asking for political positions in the new coming kingdom of Jesus that Jesus has been talking about. You see, they're going up to Jerusalem and they think the time is coming. Jesus will take back the throne for the good guys. And you know what? We want to be with Him in His glory, which is just another way to say in His kingdom. And we want to be right there at the right and at the left. You can think of this, uh, John saying this, you know, right before Jesus' administration is about to take over, uh, John turns to Jesus and says, hey, promise us this. When you step into office, when you take the throne back, when you begin your administration, make my brother James your chief of staff. Make me your VP. That's what he's asking. Jesus pops in a few corn nuts. Oh, interesting request. And <laughs> he says this in verse 38. Do you not know what you're asking? At this point, he probably sits up in his chair. And he kind of leans forward, puts the corn nuts down. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now here's what he's saying. The cup and baptism, these were classic uh, pictures of suffering and judgment. Think of a flood of suffering that will wash over Jesus on the cross. Remember, he's just told them that he must go and die, but, but they don't get it. They think he's using just a metaphor. I mean, he's just told them that he's going to be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. You think you can drink that cup? It's pretty serious at this point. And then they, that's John and James, Say this, verse 
39. We are able. <laughs> it's bold, though naive, in their response. And it's clear that they don't understand still what Jesus must go through. That the wrath of God will literally be poured out for sin on Him. We are able, they say. So Jesus is is baffled. He sits back in His chair. He grabs His corn nuts. But it's interesting that He actually changes course. He doesn't tell them, oh, you're foolish. He doesn't disregard them. I think in one sense, Jesus is a little proud of them. He's a little proud of their boldness to follow him no matter the cost, even though they don't understand what that cost is. And the reason I think that um, is because of the next thing that he says right here in verse 40. So he sits back. Pops in some more corn nuts. Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism which I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left hand is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. You see how he doesn't quite go where you think he might go? He actually tells them, you know what? You are right in a sense. You will experience suffering and judgment and pain and persecution because you will follow me no matter the cost. You see, Jesus sees into the future. We don't know how much he can see, but we know uh, that at least here he, he knows that they will drink a similar cup. Not the same cup, but a similar cup. And he's right. He's right. John will go on to outlive all the other disciples. He'll he'll live longer than any of them. He'll end up writing a gospel account himself, the gospel according to John. He'll write three of the New Testament letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He'll write the apocalyptic vision of the future we call the book of Revelation. He has quite a successful career, if you will. But his life wouldn't be easy. It'd be marked by persecution and imprisonment and exile. But he gladly walks into that for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To take the good news, to edify the saints, to bring the kingdom more fully into reality. So he does drink the cup. Not the exact same, but a similar cup to that of Jesus. Now his brother James is about as opposite of a story of success as you could have. James didn't write any of the New Testament letters. We actually don't know much about James because James was the first of the disciples to be killed for his faith in Jesus. Acts 12 tells us this. It tells us how James' earthly story ended. It says this, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. So Acts was written after Jesus' death and resurrection and it accords the Acts of the Apostles as the church began to grow. It says this, Herod laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. 
he killed James, the brother of John, with a sword. James experienced the cup of suffering and persecution early in life. But just like his brother, he was willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. He was unashamed to be counted amongst Jesus' followers. He did not alter, change, or run from the full truth of sin, judgment, and salvation in Christ alone. He fearlessly drank the cup, and Jesus told them that they would. So Jesus gives these two men great prophecy about their life that they will get to be like Him. What a gift. And He gives it to them right after they ask such a foolish question because I think He's a little proud that they're so bold to say we will go wherever the Gospel takes us. And He pops a few more corn nuts in His mouth. And He smiles. But He tells them John, even though you'll do so much for the church, you'll write so much that continues into perpetuity to bless the people of God. And James, even though you've given your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you don't get to decide which positions you'll have in the kingdom. Only God gets to assign those. I don't even know, he says. Only the Father knows. He assigns. And it actually has nothing to do with your merit. You see that? It's so consistent. Because that's exactly how salvation in the kingdom of God works. You can't serve enough, sacrifice enough, suffer enough, give enough to have places of eminence in the kingdom of God. Those positions are given by unmerited grace. It's always how it works in the kingdom of God. Jesus says, I have no idea who will sit at my right and my left. The Father gets to assign that. Now let's get back for a second to the silliness of their request for positions of power. Because it's still a silly request. They still don't understand it. So Jesus will take them aside and He'll explain to them some more. So look at verse 41 with me. When the ten heard it, that's the ten other disciples, they became indignant at James and John. Probably because they wanted the same positions and they were upset that they didn't ask first. And so Jesus called them to Himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And what's, what, what's interesting here is that he brings up Gentile rulers. He brings up politics. 
He brings up monarchies. And this just sort of underlines all these political overtones that, that, are, that are throughout this passage. Because politics is all about position and power. And he realizes that the heart behind James and John's request, and really the reason why the, the other ten are indignant, is because their heart is for position and power. So, so you could think of this request as a request for eminence. Eminence is described by this in Webster's. Exhibiting evidence, especially in standing above others in some quality or position. Prominent. Standing out so as to be readily perceived or noted. Right? This is sort of a desire in all of our hearts to be set apart, to be set on high, to be perceived as great. It's positioning. Positioning is a powerful thing. But positioning usually costs nothing. See, it doesn't, it doesn't cost me anything to stand next to a great man like Jesus. It's just a position. So if he grants me that position, you know what I get. All the greatness associated with him, now like by osmosis, is cast upon me. It's like a shortcut to greatness. Positioning. I think we all do this at some level. And probably on many levels. We desire to be associated with great people and things. We want to be associated with great causes. We want to be associated with great brands. We want to be associated with great teachers and preachers and leaders. We want to be associated with great movements because by our association, people might think we're great because we're with Him or we're with that. I know I've struggled with that in my own life. It doesn't mean that great people and movements and causes are bad in and of themselves. What, what Jesus is pointing out is just by standing next to those things doesn't make you great. You must participate in those things to actually be great. And of course, what always happens when we just want to be associated with greatness whether it's people or brands or movements, they all fail, they all flinch, they all fade at some point, and then what do we do? We pick something else or someone else to associate with. I've done it. Jesus says, stop doing that. That's what everybody else does. That's not what my people do. He says, I want you to be great yourself by doing the same kinds of things that you see me doing. Great things that cost way more than just standing in the right place or having the right title or getting the right publicity. Be truly great people by serving others like I do. 
So look, look, look here at his play on words when he's talking about greatness in the world, in the world's governments versus the greatness of his people. He says this, the Gentiles lord it over you, well, them and you, and their great ones exercise authority over them great ones but i but it shall be not so among you but whoever would be great among you must be your servant you see he's recognizing there's two types of great ones there's the great ones in terms of the world's definition and there's my great ones whoever would be great among you We've got to figure out the difference. You see, James and John, they get the who question right about Jesus. They're, they're right. He will eventually take his throne. He is the Messiah. But they muffed up the what question, which is the way he will get the throne, which is by suffering and dying for the sins of his people. I think in in one sense, Jesus is saying to them, if you knew the full story, if you actually could see what's about to happen, if you could see what it means to be the one on my right and the one on my left on Calvary, right? Because if you know the story, there's one hanging on his right and hanging on his left if you really knew what you were asking, would you still ask for it? All of us at times get, like James and John, the who question correct about Jesus. We know He's the Messiah. We know He's the Son of God. But we fail to even ask the next question, which is, what does that require of me? That just means we want everything that Jesus has to offer without everything that He's required of us. So let's keep going here with this political imagery for a moment longer. I was sitting in a coffee shop on Friday, Storyville Coffee down by Pike Place, and they have uh, this little uh, piece of artwork on the wall. So let me throw it up here, Tim, would you? This little piece of artwork on the wall. Um, oh, there it went. Okay, well you can see it over here. It is just, just this simple triangle with, with little boxes stacked upon boxes. And this is the way, Jesus says, that the world's government works. There's one Lord at the top with the power who then disseminates that power down to the people, all those underneath serve upwards to those towards the top. And, and actually, you can, ha- you can do this in something of a noble way. It's just how most kingdoms are structured. Jesus is saying that actually the way it works in His kingdom is the opposite. So you just flip over The kingdom. It's that simple. He's saying 
To be great in my kingdom is, in a sense, to be like me, and here's what I do. I have all the power, I have all the authority, but I choose to be at the bottom. Because when I'm at the bottom, I can use my power, I can choose to use my power to push the entire structure upward. That's why he says, by, by many. He says at the end of this, at the end of this uh, passage here, he gave his life so that many could experience life. You see, if you sit at the top and just diffuse your power and resources to those below, you're not actually serving anyone. Everyone else is serving you, whether you're doing that nobly or not, you're not serving anyone. Jesus says, I go to the bottom so that I might serve everyone else above me. So think, think of this uh, statement with me for a second. Um, think of a great person. You say something like this. She has a great mind, right? Or he has a great talent. Now, the world is always thinking in this right-side-up pyramid, right? Which is to say, her mind is much smarter than all other minds below her. Or his talent far exceeds is higher than anyone below her. So she or he is at the top of the pyramid. She has a great mind. He has a great talent. Now Jesus reserves this word great not just for those who are smarter than the rest or more talented than the rest. He reserves the word great for those who serve the best. Now, it's not to say that he with a great talent or she with a great mind cannot be great. The question you have to add or the qualifier you must add is, is he or she using that gift to serve? That will be the distinction in the kingdom of God as to whether you are great or not. So, you can be the smartest of people and Jesus would say, you are not great at all. Or you could be the simplest of minds and be the greatest in the kingdom of God if you use whatever it is that you have to serve others. Does that make sense? I'm glad. That I know in this room that we have brilliant people. And I know that we have talented people. The question is, are we going to be great people by using our minds, our talents, our treasures to serve others as more important than ourselves? Jesus teaches us that. Serve first. So that, we'll see in a second, others might be free so that then they can freely choose to do the same things with their mind or talents or treasures, which is to serve others. Because if you're not free to choose, you are not free to truly serve. And you see how the cycle continues. And you see how Jesus, by pushing from the bottom up, 
through the movement, the Jesus movement, by disciples making disciples, teaching them how to serve, it starts to move the entire thing upward. It's not just uh, distributing what the world always has. It's actually creating a new world, a new kingdom, a new reality through service. It's a beautiful picture if you understand what Jesus is trying to do. And unless we opt in to this upside-down kingdom, the movement stops with us. As soon as we start saying, well, you know, it worked back at the beginning of the church, or it worked with my grandparents' generation, but this just doesn't really work in this day and age. We've got to keep the cycle going. Everyone can be involved. That's that's what I love. Everyone can be involved and be like their servant king. You don't have to be quote-unquote special in the world's eyes to be great in Jesus' eyes. I love that about the upside-down kingdom. Praise be to God. Now, I want to, to uh, point out, I said, I said this in my weekly email. If, if you haven't filled out a Connect card, fill one of those out because you always get little teasers about what we're going to be talking about this week. I, I asked a question. And it's a question I, I honestly wrestle with all the time. Is ambition good or bad? Holy or sinful? Because it's clear to me in this passage that James and John had ambition for greatness. Is that bad? Here's what ambition means according to the dictionary, which is never wrong. An enthusiastic or passionate desire for rank, fame, or power, and or a desire to achieve a particular end. In, in that definition, James and John have, have serious ambition. I want to be at the right and the left. Jesus, you can be king, but I want to be number two and number three. That's ambition. And actually, if you study the history of this word, uh, where we get our word ambition, It comes actually from a Latin word. In ancient Rome, uh, candidates for public office who wanted to be elected, they'd go around, just like modern candidates do today, and they would try to convince those around the city, the citizens who would be voting, to vote for them. And so the Latin word uh, for this effort of going around the city is called ambitio, which is, of course, where we get ambition, and, and it comes from the verb meaning to go around. To candidate is basically what it is. And that's what James and John are doing here. They're candidating. Vote for me, Jesus. In fact, pledge to me now, before you even get your kingdom, that you'll elect me and my brother to these high positions of power, rank, and fame. 
You see that idea of going around, to me, that's sort of the negative side of ambition, which is I'm going to go around and just talk about how great I am, try to get people to vote me into positions of power, and it's why, at least for me, I sort of despise politics in this country because it seems like people are just going around trying to convince people of their greatness of all the ways they will serve when it seems to me this idea of a public servant which is laughable anymore should be the person who is already going around serving the public and I just recognize it and I said that's the person I want because I like the way they serve the public good I think Jesus makes it clear that this idea of just candidating, this, this form of ambition is not good. This is not in line with the kingdom way. This is not in line with the way Jesus seeks power. Jesus says in His regime, you don't just go candidating with words. We go candidating with our hands and our feet. and We actually help people. So you know somebody's worthy of leadership when you see them leading and serving. That's what Jesus says. And he models this, right? He came to serve. And we see him serving and serving and serving. This whole gospel has been about Jesus serving others. But I will say this, his service is not uninspired. His service is is anything but lacking enthusiasm. It is full of enthusiasm. It is passionate and, dare I say, ambitious. Ambitious for the love of His people. Ambitious about His serving. And so if we desire to represent Jesus, if we desire to represent His people, I think that actually sounds a lot like ambitio. If we do it right. Because Jesus did it. He desired rank and position. Jesus wanted to be king. He wanted to be king of his creation and his new kingdom. He wants to be number one both in the world and in our life. He desires fame. He wants to be known from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. He desires power to crush His enemies, to crush sin and Satan and death itself. He desires a particular end. Jesus has ambition upon ambition. And he does that all through service and humility. And so we should be ambitious to be conformed into the image of our Savior. So James and John are actually desiring in one sense a noble thing. It's not bad to want to be important in the kingdom of God. They're just going about it the wrong way. And I think that's why Jesus doesn't rebuke them like we we think He should, maybe. 
But he clarifies and he tells them that they've got a good desire in their heart, but it's only going to come into reality after very, very hard times of service and sacrifice and suffering. I'd even say it's, it's, it's not just that ambition is okay. I think it's required. You might get a little nervous about me saying, saying this about ambition. You might think that it's misrepresenting Jesus. Well, we worship a man who was arrested, tried, and executed because of his ambition. Because that the things he was saying sounded to the world like arrogance. You know what he was saying? I and the, fa- I and the Father are one. I'm equal with God. He was saying, I am God's Son. I am the Messiah. Through me, people can go to the Father and me alone. And you know what? That's what he was arrested for. That's what he was tried for in both a Jewish and a Roman court for claiming to be the king, for claiming to be God. And people misunderstood his ambition for serving, his ambition for coming to give up his life as the other kind of ambition, the kind of ambition that the world never likes particularly our subjective, relativistic culture. We don't like when God's people make bold, ambitious, exclusive claims. We say, look at their arrogance. And so if you struggle with this idea of being ambitious for God, because you're wondering how the world will receive it, I'll just clear it up for you. Some people will see your ambition for serving the kingdom of God and bringing the good news of Jesus Christ everywhere you go, in word and in deed. They will see it as arrogance, and they'll want to punish you for it. And chances are, you will suffer and be persecuted for your ambition for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because we follow a man who was killed for his ambition. But he is the judge of whether or not our ambition is directed rightly. We long for the Father to see us as humble servants, ambitiously seeking for the greatness of God that it might be revealed in the person and work of Jesus. Let me say that again. We long for the Father to see us as humble servants ambitiously seeking that the greatness of God might be revealed through the person and work of Jesus. And for that, our desire should be strong and it should move us to aggressive ambition to take Jesus and His name to the ends of the earth. So as you're seeking to be ambitious for these things, as you are seeking to be great in the eyes of God, 
here are a few qualifiers that I want to give you. There are three kinds of ambition in the world. Selfish ambition, which seeks self above all else. The only thing in my mind is myself. And it's always for earthly, selfish ends. Noble ambition has others in mind. It seeks virtuous means, but only earthly ends. And godly ambition has others in mind, uses virtuous means, and seeks eternal ends. That's maybe one way to help you understand is my ambition truly godly ambition? Or is it something less? Now, of course, noble ambition is better than selfish ambition. But it's not all the way to godly ambition. So, ambition is only godly if you consider other consider others more important than yourself. So why did James and John want those seats of honor? Well, they were thinking about themselves probably more than others. Godly ambition, or ambition is only godly if you consider the means to the end as important as the end itself. You cannot shortcut your way to the end. Then it's not godly ambition. So James and John Did they sacrifice the means for the end? At least in their minds, probably. They tried to circumvent the process. They tried to get in places of power even before Jesus had the throne. And then ambition that is is godly only if you consider the eternal ends over and above the earthly ends. Now ultimately, James and John do this. They do not consider their life more important than the gospel. Jesus says, if you seek to save your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for the sake of the gospel, you will save it. We see that with both James and John. And Jesus is, of course, the picture of this godly ambition. Jesus had an eternal kingdom always in mind when he pursued his goals. He did not consider life on earth to be more valuable in comparison to the eternal glories waiting him. And so he came and he served. And he gave his life. Jesus never sacrificed the means for the end. And Jesus considered others more valuable than himself. Look again at perhaps one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible. Verse 45 says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He gave His own life as a ransom for many. We need to stare intently at these words. We need to breathe in this reality in order to find the true heart of greatness. A ransom was this. Someone that was enslaved, often captured during a war, could be bought back for a price. I I, I could buy back someone who had been captive. But it cost me. That's what Jesus says He's done for His people, for many. 
But the price here that Jesus had to pay was far greater than just some monetary sum. In fact, there is no monetary sum that can purchase the kind of freedom that we need. It took something of the greatest value. It took the greatest of a human, divine man in the person of Jesus to be sufficient payment for our ransom. That's why he says his own life he gives as a ransom. And the word for here in the sentence means in place of. So in verse 44, when Jesus says, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, He's not using hyperbole. What verse 45 is telling us is that Jesus took our place and we were once slaves to sin and the power of sin and He gave Himself in our place. Meaning He became a slave to our sin so that we might be freed from our sin. This is so hard for us to fathom How incredible that is. He who was the most free became the most captive as He hung on the cross and gave His life as a ransom. He became a slave so that we might be free from slavery. The the best illustration I've ever seen of this is, I, I, I kind of cringe to say it, but is Hunger Games, right? Where Katniss gives herself, she volunteers to be a tribute in the place of her sister, Primrose. If you haven't seen the Hunger Games, good for you. Great franchise. It's the best picture, though. That's what Jesus does. He didn't just buy us out. He gives Himself. His life was not taken, verse 45 says. It was given. He gives it freely. He chooses it freely. Voluntarily. He gives it. No one took it from Him. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's godly ambition. That's greatness. That's what it looks like. If you want to be great, you start by giving your life away for others. So when we started by asking, what is greatness? I couldn't help but think of a definition that included people. I I couldn't even fathom how do I describe greatness without thinking about great people. And of course I thought about Jesus, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. But then I thought about two other people. The first was Billy Graham because he passed away 11 days ago. The age of 99. Billy Graham was the face of orthodox, biblical Protestant Christianity for almost five decades. He preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to over 215 million people around the globe in 185 countries. Billy was an ambitious man, not for his own fame, but for the rank, fame, and power of Jesus Christ in this world. 
and he made much of Jesus. That, that was what he was ambitious for. He wanted Jesus' fame. Jesus' rank in the hearts of all people, asking them to come down time and time again to bend their knee to Jesus and accept Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. Millions accepted his prompt and did just that. He was ambitious. And he accomplished a lot. Billy Graham was a great man. Not because he was widely known and beloved. Not because he was friends of presidents and world leaders but for one simple reason, that he was ambitious for the kingdom of God coming to earth as it is in heaven, a little brighter, a little fuller. And it wasn't easy. It cost him a lot. I was watching some documentaries about him the week he passed. He'd spent seven months unending on the road, away from his family, away from his five kids, away from his wife, because he believed that the cost on this earth was worth the value of eternity. Billy was a great man. I want to ask another great man to stand. (laughs) He won't want to because he's too humble. This is my mentor, Bruce, who's actually... Bruce, would you stand up just for a second? You can sit back down. This is Bruce. (laughs) Okay, he's sitting back down. Bruce... Nicolay is a great man. He's one of the greatest men I know. He was my mentor. He still is my mentor. But when I was in seminary in Denver, his wife Marty is leading the women's retreat right now. They flew out here to serve us and love on us. Bruce is a great man. And you'll never read one of his books, maybe. He's writing a book. You've probably never heard one of his sermons. You've probably never even heard the acoustic blast Bruce Nicolay said aloud. He pastored, founded and pastored a church for 23 years in the foothills of Colorado. But even though you don't know him, even though he doesn't hold some position of greatness in our society, just like Billy, Bruce has lived himself into greatness. Because he's made much of God's greatness. And he's been ambitious for the name of Jesus. He's been ambitious to serve the gospel of grace. He's been ambitious to become a servant to all for the sake of God's glory. He's been ambitious to become smaller so that Jesus can become bigger. And guess what? It's been brutal. It's cost him a lot along the way. Thank you, Bruce, for showing me what greatness looks like in all of its forms. And this is the call of Jesus to all his disciples. Wherever you sit, whatever your platform, whatever position that the Father has assigned to you, are you ambitious for the name of Jesus becoming famous, the gospel of Jesus changing lives that Jesus Christ must, must, would become first in the hearts of many. For Billy, for Bruce, for me, for you, 
All we have to do to be great is just do what we see Jesus doing. Giving himself away so that others might find freedom. Let's pray. For your greatness, God, for your glory, God, for your gospel, God, for your kingdom, God, for your magnified name, for our sanctification, we pray for opportunities to serve others and for the ambition to engage those opportunities for your name, for your fame, for your rank in this world when the time comes. Thank you, Jesus, for giving your life as a ransom for ours. Thank you for freeing me from slavery to my sin. Spirit, fill me up. Change me to become more like Jesus. More like the servant King that others too might know the reality and the power and the beauty and the greatness of your gospel of grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.